to Main Street Mesa, where we discuss issues around building a more human, people-centered community in Mesa, Arizona, and other communities like it. I'm Ryan Wozniak. I'm David Crummy. And we're here to dive into our third podcast. If you missed our second episode, it covered the first two sections of our book club. Check that out if you haven't already. And we will note that we're actually recording this fourth because our last episode... Uh, we recorded in a park, and many, many technical mishaps happened. This is retake. So, excuse us if we're a little flat or whatever, but we'll try to keep the energy up as if this was an original conversation. That's right. And we are uh, drawing our inspiration right here on Main Street, recording in Il Vianio. Il? Il Vanio. Il Vanio. I don't know how to speak Italian. And uh, that's because we're in this lovely American restaurant, and I have no inspiration to draw from time. But it's a wine bar, and it's right here on Country Club and Main Street. We have a view of the light rail stop, and but we're drinking craft brew because I'm not much of a wine up. I love wine, but they had the Ninkasi tried Sarah hops on tap, and I've got the Deschutes stout. So we're ready for uh, craft fest. And drinking very much in Oregon for Mesa. So, I think that means that we can discuss how little uh, notes that we receive via email at this point. Uh, but we do have an active Facebook page. So, we definitely encourage you to look up Main Street Mesa on Facebook. Join the crowd and uh, join in on the conversations. We've had people ask us uh, to dive deeper into research. You know, it's just David and I, and we're already full-time uh, guys doing full-time things. And so this is definitely something that uh, we're passionate about and want to bring in conversation to, to Main Street. But uh, this is also a community that we're building. And so we love your input. Yeah, dive in and, and, and bring it to us. So. so you can send us comments to MainStreetMesa at gmail.com. That's MainStMesa at gmail.com. Facebook and Tumblr, uh, Main Street Mesa. And of course, on SoundCloud, Main Street Mesa. For the brave, record a short voice message and email it to us for a chance to be featured on the show. So that brings us to the book club. We're assuming that you're reading along and that we don't have to read the book for you. But <laughs> today we're discussing pages 15 through 35 in the first paperback edition. Or for e readers, you're around the 3% mark. Uh, for book readers, you're also at the 3% mark. But you just don't have 3% on your page. Last time, uh, we were had our guest, Ariana, uh, on, and uh, we found out that we're awful at keeping time, and we took one episode and stretched it into two. So this is it. This is episode 2.5. The battle was never declared, but we lost. Who lost? Oh, the walkers? The designers. Oh, the designers. That's right. Because we have to beat them up with all these stupid standards for really big things to drive around. It was one of those things that uh, was an early recognition when I left planning school or late in planning school was that planners and architects don't actually get to, to design cities. It is trash and fire that get to truly design our cities. At least how much is taken up in parking lots and streets. And that is definitely a uh, tension between how much space is allocated for the pedestrian and how much space is allocated for a vehicle. 
especially a very, very large fire truck that is designed to save people from the third story or fifth story or tenth story of a building. Or higher. And we don't have too many fire trucks like that, but the entire valley, entire state of Arizona is designed around fire trucks that are designed to save people from tall buildings. Yeah, we have oversized fire trucks in most of the cities for their built environments. For instance, Main Street is only has a few tall buildings, and yet we have trucks to everywhere throughout the city that are meant to serve those tall buildings. And, you know, for fire departments, they always have to think about the backup plan, who's coming to, for support, and they have to... So their approach to this is to equip every fire station for the tallest building in their city. And the unfortunate aspect of that is that there, then every street has to be designed for these lumbering vehicles. Well, and it's very important that we have those, but the majority of all fire calls are usually just medical. Um, in Mesa, we actually have the Fire and Medical Response Unit, the TRV, um, that comes out and has the uh, PA that's available. That It's just it's basically a Ford F-350 cool. that goes out, but we still have to design for the biggest, baddest fire truck around. Yeah. And so I would share with uh, our listeners a success story on how to counter this. So Joe Johnston, the visionary of Agritopia out in Gilbert, made the commitment when building Agritopia for building a fire station and, and equipping it with a small fire truck so that his community could have narrower streets with tighter turns and short, uh, smaller intersections so that pedestrian orientation was achievable. And not watered down by really fat intersections. So that's that's an interesting story. And, and uh, hats off to what Agritopia has been able to do by making that commitment to investing in uh, equipment that doesn't take away from that pedestrian culture that they're trying to build there. One of the other things that I, I thought about was the idea of having to ease traffic generated by the sprawl that created it. So the forever widening of our streets, which means more traffic and more problems. Um, it's really hard to fix those problems after they're already done, um, especially on a huge scale like Mesa, where 90% of our land is already car dependent. And very little of it, actually only our historic downtown that was designed and built before the car, is able to be easily retrofitted back mm -hmm. and fix some of the problems that we we created in the 60s and 70s to uh, basically pull apart our downtown. Yeah, I think one of the common responses that we're getting on Facebook too is that while Mesa kind of is built for pedestrians, it obviously could be more robust in attracting those pedestrians. And I think that this chapter kind of talks about how these, uh, you start off by talking, building the quality of life into the built environments and then the people will come and mesa obviously the light rail hasn't been here for very long but it's the the tide's turning and it's only a matter of time before downtown mesa just is flourishing with more pedestrians and <clears throat> my prediction i don't know what is your what are pedestrians people who used our feet to get around <laughs> you mean 
downtown, it's only a matter of time before more people come to downtown Mesa. Yeah, and so one thing that um, really good urban designers will remind decision makers of or planners who get too deep into just applying the code in a black and white uh, meaning without taking into consideration the context of the, the setting is that even people who drive end up becoming pedestrians at some point. Everybody gets out of their car and will walk down a main street environment if you design it to, to be inviting. Well, every single trip for a normal able-bodied person begins and ends in walking, no matter what. You walk to your car, you walk to the bus, you walk to your bike, and you walk into the store, you walk into your house. Every single trip begins and ends with walking. So it is the number one mode of transportation for humans, even though we have $30,000 vehicles that uh, augment our distance. Yeah, we can, we can get lost in all the data, right? That <laughs> detracts from that story that we are all pedestrians. Yep. Um, but that also tells, gets us the next part, which is, why? Why is this important? And that is the whole idea of city after city. We're losing out to communities that are walkable. Talks about Portland being just kicking butt later in the chapter. Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yes. It's the big thing, though, is the idea of brain drain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're losing our brightest and smartest. And that's a a double-sided coin, right? On one side, you have brain drain, where you want to retain the the young bright people who are graduating college but on the the flip side of that is also you want to attract those those people who are going to contribute to a vibrant city setting and uh, there's statistics in this chapter about portland being able to attract five times the average college educated millennial uh, versus other cities but he also talks about his experience in grand rapids which is really enlightening with regards to protecting from brain drain. And we experience that here in Mesa, right? We see a huge amount of that. I mean, just think about all the kids that you went to high school with. If you're from Mesa, how many people left Mesa right after high school and never came back? It's a lot. <clears throat> and that's kind of sad because this is the, the sun belts. This is the people that people are, this is the place where people are supposed to gravitate to. And if, if Mesa is, is experiencing brain drain, then it's to explain that is not easily done based on a national shift to warmer climate. No, and it's That's not one a, way. And affordability is in it either, because we right. get a huge number of people who come from uh, California and uh, things like that because it's not as affordable. But the brightest and best aren't coming; they're staying there. Um, it's not just the creatives, though. You know, we hear about Richard Florida and the rise of the creative class. Um, but this clamor for street life, this interesting life, is from people of all ages and abilities. Um, who's the guy that wrote The Great Third Place? I believe you're thinking of Robert Putnam. Or no. He's, he's a social psychologist, Robert Putnam. has uh, written Bullying Alone. No, it was a great third like place. That. It was from the 80s. It basically was yeah. the entire inspiration for how Starbucks designed their stores. Wow. Um, but basically the idea that pe- the first place is home and the second place is work and people need a third place to meet and hang out. Mm-hmm. And coffee shops through history have been that space. The other place that I think of as a great third place is actually streets, sidewalks, mm-hmm. 
those spaces where you tend to meet. So whether it's in front of a cafe, um, like a large mermaid um, signed <clears throat> place, or if it's locally owned, or if it's just on a park bench, those places don't exist all that much. And uh, one of the things that I've read in other um, places where I can't exactly quote from it off the top of my head is the importance of having street art to have this shared experience between two strangers so that when you're on a sidewalk you have a shared experience to talk about which is the commonality which you'll find between each other that is a uh, place where a conversation will spark from and then to me, the, the importance of street art is less about that art is there. It's that the community is involved in the development and they have a sense of ownership um, out of it. You know, one of the things that we've been working on in downtown Mesa is actually bringing artists to present their work in downtown in a public space. So live murals, um, installations, temporary installations, permanent installations, performance. performance art, those types of things that we've been working on and increasing, you know, Creative Catalyst through Mesa Art Center um, is one of those places, <clears throat> one of those methods of bringing more people to that. Um, that feeds into this creatives conversation, right? Because artists are creatives. The creative yeah, but creatives also include uh, teachers, engineers, architects, designers, anyone who's actually has to make something in their work. And so a teacher counts as a creative because lesson planning is a custom, very creative activity. It's not something you can just pull out of a book and do. Um, the problem solvers. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Um, and perpetually having to recreate something in different ways so different people can understand it. So one of the things to talk about is the urban hub that attracts and retains the millennial creative class. So about four or five years ago, we held the um, Mesa Urban Development Summit um, here in downtown Mesa with uh, Neighborhood Economic Development Corporation, where I used to work. We brought in the Congress for the New Urbanism, um, along with Sustainable Communities Collaborative, which is a Phoenix Tempe Mesa-based organization that brings together uh, people from different government uh, sectors, nonprofits, and things like that. Um, and we brought in the Congress for New Urbanism, John Norquist and some other great people, a number of great examples from Salt Lake City. And going back, and you know, one of the things that they kept saying is like, man, Mesa, you have everything. You have a Ferrari of a code. Your, your form-based code is amazing. Your planning is top-notch, so all of the plans that we've developed, some of the best in the country. We had <clears throat> mayor and council that seemed to get it. They had, We have um, great bones of a downtown, great community. We have great infrastructure. We have light rail coming. At that point, it was still coming. We have everything that's tied up. We had Benedictine University and Wilkes University had just started. And we also have MCC and other schools down here. And they're basically, wow, we have all of these young people that are here trying out our downtown. Yeah. Now, what are we doing to keep them once they've tried out our downtown? And, and one of the things about, like, the bones and, and the variety of, of destinations that you're talking about 
is that none of that would happen if they had a dominant footprint in the downtown area. All these things fit right at the right scale, right? Like Benedictine is not over-dominant. Wilkes is not over-dominant. The community college, none of these campuses are, are uh, slapping down huge buildings that disrupt the, the fabric of, of what downtown basically yeah, is. Yeah, it's, it's all woven together and growing. We'll, we'll see that grow more over the next few years. But, you know, it's that whole idea that we have kids that are here, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, experiencing Mesa for their college years. I look, I went to my undergrad in Tucson and I still love Tucson because I had such a great time there and I would consider going back in heartbeat. Um, now, do the people that graduate from Wilkes or Benedictine University or the people that spend their formative college years in downtown Mesa, are they, are they having that same experience? So with regard to that, we have these young college-educated people who the, the statistics are mind-boggling in, in my mind. A full 77% of them plan to live in America's urban cores. And he also talks about how millennials will choose where they live before where they work. So automatically they're drawn to an environment. And so what, what contrasts in my mind, right, is imagine you're visiting a, uh, a place, uh, a new place different from where you've grown up. And you're the, this company is trying to attract you and say, yes, come work here, come live here. But you show up and it's a industrial park, just big block buildings with a lot of asphalt and not a whole lot of street culture. Not an attractive place to call home the, that live work environment. That then your house has to be somewhere that's exciting. You need to be live close to somewhere because if you're going to be driving to a boring place to work, you need to be living in an exciting place. But if you're visiting this destination and these employers are in the game of trying to attract the best and the brightest, so they're trying to locate in the place, if their business model allows, that is more vibrant and sells itself to these best and brightest. Oh, yeah. And that's happening across the country. You know, I was visiting Kansas City, um, Buffalo. Cincinnati even, are communities that I've experienced this entire drive to bring back the downtown and creative businesses working in those areas. I mean, Target, their headquarters are in downtown Cincinnati. Mm. Kroger, no, Target's in Minneapolis. Kroger's in Cincinnati. But Target's right downtown Minneapolis. I mean, these big corporations, they look at those areas and it's important for them when you talk about failed economic development strategies of just thinking in terms of creating industry clusters where this is this agglomeration magic that these cities are clamoring for they want these clusters of industries to come together and build off of each other where you have the multiplier effects where if you land the apple then you get the, the the related industries that are supporting Apple coming in and you end up creating an industry cluster. Well, he talks about in the book like how that is a failed uh, strategy. It's just the flavor of the day and it depends on what industry is, is hot or in the buzz of media at the time. 
Well, and we'll shift to. to be honest, like, so we have the Apple data center, which is a, it's a big deal, but it's 30 miles from where we are right now. And so what industry clusters happen out at that data center? Where do those people go for dinner afterwards? So for example, Intel in Chandler, it's actually fairly close to downtown Chandler. So you have a major employer, you have a major knowledge center, you have places like Gangplank that are tying onto that type of work, that knowledge work. And then you have the thriving center of downtown Chandler that 15 years ago was bombed out. Yeah. And now through a lot of reinvestment and a lot of good effort is a very walkable community. Yeah, they've done their street design with pedestrians in mind. They haven't uh, bombarded their uh, their site programming with a ton of parking, that, that parking lot moat concept that I, I've talked about before. Um, well, a lot of that was, again, that was a historic downtown that survived. Right. Um, so it just got rebuilt rather than being reinvented. Otherwise, it would be street, a thousand feet of parking front door. And this is where the magic of like form-based codes comes in, right? Because the people who write form-based codes, they'll come in and they'll measure out the, the physical features of that historic existing urban fabric of those, those existing buildings. And they'll create codes that will help replicate what's working there. And this is the whole idea of bringing back the traditional downtowns, the traditional communities like it used to be. And bringing it back, because we left that. In the 50s and 60s, we started deviating from what had worked for hundreds of years and started this new car-based focus, which basically allowed for the disaster that was the 70s, 80s, 90s, that hopefully we're turning away from now. Yeah. And if you want to know more about this, Google the term traditional neighborhood design. Like, shut off this podcast right now. Just go start reading that stuff. That's, you can still listen really to stuff. it and Google <laughs> at the same time. Okay. I, I hope. <laughs> so, uh, but it's, that's a, a great um, sensitive way to bring back what works. Because as we've deviated from what works and experimented with this car orientation to our design, it's, it's influenced the way that we build buildings or build our residence. Now, all of a sudden, we need at least 400 square feet for two cars to, to be under roof. And so all this does is eat up a lot of our space that separates people from working together, from collaborating, from getting to know each other. It's isolating. It's eating up the, the space in the street. You, you look at the, the distance curb to curb that's allocated for, street, uh, for cars. And you measure that in comparison to the width of sidewalks, and you instantly get an appreciation for what that street is designed for, whether it's meant for primarily cars or primarily pedestrians. So if you grew up basically any time up until the 70s, you experienced pretty much a walkable community. And starting around the late 60s, early 70s, we started rebuilding our communities to be less walkable, not allowing kids to walk to school. I was lucky when I was in my formative years, my youngest years, I grew up in a pretty small town that was actually built in the 15 and 1600s. Um, so they got to miss a lot of that. 
But, you know, like, for example, Mesa has a Facebook page that probably is one of the most followed Facebook pages, which is, I grew up in Mesa in the 70s. And it's a whole bunch of people with a sense of nostalgia for how good Mesa was back then. And part of that, I believe, is how much we've destroyed our community by pulling out. So we lost all of our businesses when the freeway came because businesses moved to the freeways. They moved out to the growth. You know, we lost doctor's offices and things like that because, of course, they moved to the bright, shiny things. The bright, shiny things. And the financial markets agreed. You can't get you couldn't get financing for a long time. And it's still hard to get financing for certain uh, development types if you're not in near a freeway, if you're not near certain points that makes a lot of sense for a Wall Street banker's spreadsheet, but doesn't make a lot of sense for Main Street. See, it's the Wall Street versus Main Street. And they've had a hard time uh, capturing the data that spells out what we intuitively know, that this environment, this attraction, this draw that people have to one another, to the city, the why cities exist in the first place is because we're more productive and we come together and work together. Like This is hard for them to measure that there is a return on bringing people together in an urban environment versus the way that they we have a ton of data for traffic volumes that are generated um, that pass by a certain building or uh, go down a certain street. And so these Wall Street guys, they're chasing after those volumes of people that they that they know that they have data that that backs what their uh, performa that they have to defend. Well, that was one of the things that really stunned me later on in the chapter was the whole idea that, how was it, Phoenix was completely underperforming below, here the quote is, the Phoenix is below average levels of income and innovation as measured by the production of patents for the last 40 years. Below average, 40 years. And we know that Phoenix is the poster child for sprawl. And and, well, this is Phoenix, Phoenix Metro. Right. Mesa is at the heart of Phoenix Metro. We make up, what, a quarter of the population of the place. Yeah. You know, we're probably more sprawled than Phoenix is, even though we're, well, we're probably not even as dense as L.A. L.A. is a surprisingly dense community. Yeah. But we don't have the, the residents to job ratio that is enjoyed by Tempe. Oh, Tempe is a net exporter of jobs and importer of employees. And we know why that is, is because they're able to retain the talent that comes to ASU and they have a pretty successful Mill Avenue and that energy is just going to keep growing and they've invested in that waterfront and they have some really impeccable uh, architecture and they, in the history there that they've been able to retain. And um, even in the scorching <laughs> hot But, but lost a lot of it. We can't talk uh, about Mill without talking about Mill was kind of destroyed. Um, well, yeah, it's definitely been under fire from new shiny development. Yeah. But I, I want to also reflect that it's not just about young people. It's not just about recent college graduates. It's not just about the young, young pretty 20 and 30-somethings. It's also about our seniors. 
them wanting an easier lifestyle as they get older and slower and you know living close to cool stuff to do being able to continue being active seeing things my parents are a great example of this i have a number of friends that moved to downtown mesa from outlying suburban communities because they were tired of that stepford wide community and nothing to do and here they get to walk to different restaurants different entertainment venues they can go to the mesa art center they can get on light rail and go to an airport or things like that and they don't have to worry about that type of thing walking and transit are contributing to their independence being extended because a lot of people when they get to 75 80 years old lose confidence in their ability to drive well and i'm talking about people that are still working i'm talking about people in their 50s that are are done with that concept of i need a big house and a big yard because what they really want is an active lifestyle and living in a community that they they get to be a part of that they get to experience um and AARP, to their credit, is uh, one of these organizations that's highlighting the benefits of livable communities. They have a livability index yeah, that you can check online. Their work in walkable communities is actually some of the best in the nation um, because they see it. It allows you to, to reach that. And then, so there's also less impact to the spikes in energy prices, right? So he talks about some of that as gas prices broke $4 per gallon. In the housing bubble burst. So, oh yeah, this is the housing and transportation index, which is uh, Robert Chapman with the uh, Center for Neighborhood yeah, Technology. Is uh, definitely a great think tank out of the Chicago area that's done great work in mapping the housing plus transportation costs and how that is a stress on a lot of families who are outside of that urban or inner ring suburbs that uh, are driving extended distances and um, spending a lot more than the typical 20% on transportation. And which, they, they also do a lot of work in Savannah, Georgia, uh, which is great because they're one of those pre-war communities. And by pre-war, I mean pre-Civil War, antebellum communities that still retains a lot of that great walkability. And I think when you live in a community like that, that was developed, you have a a greater develop before the car you have a greater appreciation for what's lost when you come to a community that was developed after so one of the things that um struck me about this uh section that jeff speck authors is talking about that relationship between transportation costs and housing value Mm -hmm. and how if you save in the transportation expenditures how that can actually increase people's homes values because housing is a natural absorber of this additional income, this additional discretionary income that comes from saving on transportation. Yeah, when you save money on your car, you're more likely, well, if you save any money, no matter where it's from, you're more likely to invest it in your house. But saving money on a vehicle, is, what, 1600 bucks a month is the average American? I remember reading that much money is that's a huge savings if you're saving even a portion of that that does mean that you're investing more in your home which is especially important for communities like mesa that have older neighborhoods that saw a lot of disinvestment when people moved out to a brand new home out in the the sticks 
uh, we don't have sticks, out in the brush <laughs> and like left these as investment properties and stopped investing in them. Right. Yeah. Just extracting out of what was here without reinvesting in its long-term prosperity. And so, yeah, like appreciating what transit and walkability can do for older downtown or older parts of Mesa. I, I think that this is one of these unappreciated gems promises that could uh, come from the light rail and really uh, latching on to what the light rail can do for our neighborhoods. It, it, it boggles my mind how, how some people are so uh, disinterested in, in investing in transit because they see the types of people, quote unquote, that use transit and kind of look down upon them. But those people are the people that you need to uh, breathe a little life into that if they can have a little discretionary income, they're going to reinvest in where they live. And you're going to like your community better because these people that you were looking down upon all of a sudden are finding opportunity to improve their lives, improve their communities, improve your community. And you don't have to look down on them as a neighbor anymore. You can well, be looking up to them as a neighbor. And the truth is, is that people at the lower levels of the income bracket, median below, median income and below, they're actually spending a larger percentage of their household income on entertainment, on restaurants, on going out. Because, one, we all enjoy doing that. And if we can save them money on their transportation costs, that means even more multiplier effects are happening here in the local economy. But transit isn't just for poor people. No. What we saw with the development of light rail in the valley was more and more professionals were using it than ever used buses. So light rail is one of those things that it's much more used by the professional class and especially in Arizona or in the Valley by students. Students are probably the number one single ridership category. Yeah. I might see rail. huge droves of people using it to get to downtown during uh, special events. So we have what we know is transit and walkable communities build wealth in our community, not just for those who have the least amount of wealth, but also for people who are already well off, they build more wealth by living in a community because they can gain equity, they can gain savings, they can also, um, they also have more time to spend on different things. The gig culture, you can have your after, after school activities, after work. Um, we know that it brings brighter people, better jobs, longer lasting jobs um chris leinberger talks about um the idea that suburbia is the next slum mm. um he has a chart that i love that uh, was introduced to me i think by mike hawthorne from the suburban land reserve up in salt lake city and he showed it off and basically the story is that in the first five, seven years of a development project, in a downtown, it actually underperforms the market, uh, especially compared to a strip mall development. Strip mall developments, they do great in the first five, seven years. Typically, they're chain or something new and shiny. Downtown's not that good. It's a steady increase in income. But in the seven to 20-year mark, downtowns greatly outperform the suburban style of development because it is a long-term investment. And by the year 30, by the year 40, 
we're looking at huge, huge reinvestment. So those buildings have already been paid for. They get to be redesigned. And so that investment keeps coming in. So the long-term thinking, if we're talking about strong, stable communities, downtowns are where that happens. The suburbs, I mean, just take a look. A mile or so away from downtown Mesa, which was the 70s suburbs, that's the stuff that we're having the hardest time with right now. And if you also look at what happened during the housing crash of 2008-ish, oh, yeah. 2007, the effects of the housing crash barely scathed the urban communities. That's absolutely true. The outlying communities saw huge... No, sorry. The outlying communities had greatly more foreclosure activity. Mm-hmm. We're seeing tons of short sales. There's actually a great study that actually looked at distance from, you know, actually it was the housing and transportation index. They took the housing and transportation index and the better your score was on that index, the less likely you were to foreclose during the downturn. Resilient communities, right? Like this is what we all want Mesa to be a resilient community that strong families, strong households, strong businesses, and a overall strong community that can withstand a downturn in the economy. We all know the economy goes through ebbs and flows. We need to be able to survive the ebbs. And what we're seeing out of the evidence, out of social science, out of the stories that people tell, is that it is clear that these resilient communities are the pedestrian-oriented ones, the, the main streets. And so what we need to do is continue to have faith in our main street that's going to uh, take us into this resilient future. The other thing that uh, really popped out in this area was the idea of we have demand is greatly outpacing supply. So demand for walkable community is way outpacing the supply here in the valley, which means people are looking at areas across the country to move to because if they want to live in a hip new place, this is that whole Portland is for quitters mantra (laughs) I have. Don't move to Portland because it's already done there. Build it here because we need that. We need people that think about community, that want to build strong, wealthy communities to be to be here and to stay here and not move to lame cities like San Francisco or Austin. Yeah, if if you're if you're a fan of this topic and you move away, David's going to find you and haunt you. You're dead to me. <laughs> so the the great takeaway here is the economy booms, people's social lives boom, they're they're attracted, they're uh, willing to invest, they're resilient. Uh, it's a place for a lot of different people. A lot of different generations are looking for this. And so we need, we need to make it happen. And when it comes to the story of Mesa, um, what do you see as this opportunity? How, how do we get from where we're at today to this, this promised land that Jeff Speck lays out? Well, I think it's just following our plans and investing in it. Um, part of it is making sure that our economic development agencies, both at a regional level and at the city level, are focused on building the types of jobs that we need to take us into the 21st century, the types of jobs that attract knowledge-based workers that want us to hang out where they, in the areas near their work, they want to live near their work. 
So it creates that culture and energy of people being together and sharing that knowledge. You know, the whole thing that cities are founded on is that community and bringing it together. And, and it happens less in suburban areas like most of Mesa than it does in downtown areas where people run into each other. Um, I think that's, that's a huge portion of it. Yeah, and people running into each other. Is, another success story, if you want to do more reading on this topic, is Startup um, Communities. It's a book that uh, focuses on the success of Boulder, Colorado, which is another one of these millennial draws that, that people are moving to by the droves, and there's that tech bubble or tech industry uh, taking off and doing really great things. And you look at where they're investing, they're not doing it through a ton of density either. They're doing it through really great bike trails and uh, alternative transportation uh, options besides the car. So again, I think that uh, Boulder has a lot of uh, a lot of lessons for us. If, if the place like New York City or San Francisco scares you, for what if you think that's Boulder, what we're Kansas City, yeah. you know, there's tons of communities that are. If you think that's what we're aiming for, is like to Provo. replicate, replicate uh, the San Francisco's and the New York for for Mesa. That's not, I think, the the future of Mesa. The, the future of Mesa. Although I w- I would bet your next beer that Boulder, the central area of Boulder, is more dense than downtown Mesa. Hmm. Yeah, I bet you a beer. I won't take that bet because I bet centrally you're right. But when you look at the surrounding community, the suburbs, not the suburbs, just that that first edge community that just that uh, that transition zone where you go from the the dense to the more single family oriented uh, development uh, style you will find that that density is very similar to what we have here in downtown Mesa. But around a much more dense downtown. Yes. Where all the jobs are and all the cool people are. And, well, we don't have any beers from Boulder here tonight. But although I will say our craft brewing community has really grown in Arizona. We have huge numbers. But downtown Mesa, two craft brewers right now, we're going to have... 12 West is going to be moving back from stupid Joe Johnston's place <laughs> back to 12 West Main Street. I, lo- I love the fact that they named the brewery after their address on Main Street. And then Cider Core. We're going to have one of the first apple cider, dis- or not distilleries, that, that's next. That's next. Breweries in the, in the state. I did want to touch base just because we're in this national conversation about the importance of infrastructure spending and the idea that you know it is important that the idea of our crumbling bridges and dams and things like that and maintenance is very important Mm -hmm. it's a great article about the importance of it wasn't an article freakonomics episode freakonomics podcast the importance of maintenance great great podcast take an hour listen to it but one of the things that was mentioned in the book that just I was really surprising was the number of that highway work and bridge work and things like that are notoriously bad at increasing employment. I thought that was stunning. And 
yeah, and how you can flip that investment to other local investments that's not about driving 70 miles per hour, but driving 35 miles an hour or less, and uh, the, the widening of your sidewalks. But I mean, so this kind of gets into the fact that we can design for more walkable uh, by just widening sidewalks and making places safe to walk. Or ride your bike or take transit. But there, so we get into the, the next episode that there's so much more to that, right? The, the 10 steps of walkability. Yeah, but I'm here I'm talking yeah. about. So for every dollar spent in public infrastructure, it's 70% more efficient or 70% more jobs are created for walking, biking, or transit infrastructure than highway because highway infrastructure is so automated. And have big machines and very few crew, whereas transit and biking and things like that are more labor intensive. So if you want to create jobs and you were perhaps thinking about uh, nationally, you wanted to put America back to work and you really wanted to look at great ways to spend your money in a smart way. So the same amount of money you would spend on highways, instead you spent on transit and bicycle and walking infrastructure. You would create way more jobs, not just now, but into the long term. Yeah, and how that the highway actually contributes to less resilience that we're talking about that we gain from the urban style. So we want to make America great again. Resilience again, I would hope. Stronger, better, faster, stronger. So stronger communities, wealthier communities, communities that are more easy that more easily bounce back from hiccups in the market that create better jobs, that sustain better jobs, that outperform the rest of the country, that invest more in local businesses, that invest more in other local businesses that create a local supply chain. That save money on transportation so that you can reinvest in your home, so that you can your, your property value actually goes up. Walkability is the keystone to all of these. That's, that's my takeaway from from these two chapters so we've already recorded the next episode which uh is exciting but please join us for that <laughs> so if we're if we're successful at all at editing and getting these things out episodes three and four should be you know maybe back to back ish so join us next week or next time or next download or whatever for the next two sections, Why Johnny Can't Walk and the Wrong Colored Green. If you are following along in the paperback book, these is page, this is pages 36 through 63, so you only have 27 pages to read. Uh, we will have a very special guest, downtown resident and activist, Hoya Montes, or Jewel, as we all know and love her, uh, will be with us. And I just met Jewel, and she's awesome. You haven't met her yet. You meet her next episode. Meet her in the past future. Yes. This is this is why time travel doesn't work. <laughs> but that's all we have for today. Make sure you follow us online, join the conversation on Facebook or Tumblr, Main Street Mesa. Email your comments to mainstmesa at gmail.com. Well, as a closing thought, I don't really have much of a quote. But well, I, I, do. Have, I have a quote. Oh, you want your It's the only quote I want. Okay. Our theme music is written by Philip Buckman. Performed by the Sweaty Palm Trees and produced and recorded by David Wiersch. Thank you, David. 
all the fancy economic development strategies or whatever the current economic development flavor of the month might be, do not hold a candle to the power of a great walkable urban place. Oh, that's straight up legit.